Thanks for that, Simon. <laughs> if you're next to someone and they're single and you'd like to go out with them, then just squeeze their knee gently. I'm joking, I'm joking. Yeah, or you could hold hands, yeah. Well, welcome. Great to have you here. Thanks uh, particularly if you're here and you're a visitor. Uh, realize it takes a lot of courage sometimes to come to a big crowd of people like this and particularly come to church maybe for the first time or first time in a long time. And if you have, then you're so, so welcome here. It's really a privilege to have you here. And uh, this week in our family, uh, I and my wife, we celebrated our 20th wedding anniversary. So it's been a, it's been a good week. <coughs> Being a good week in our households, so 20 years celebration. So we, we actually got married on the day that Princess Diana was buried 20 years ago. And uh, I, I remember we had lots of friends traveling from all over the country to our wedding, and they said literally the streets were deserted that day because everyone was at home, kind of glued to their TVs, watching kind of proceedings and kind of in national mourning. And I remember arriving at the church, and the first person to greet me at the door was an elderly gentleman in the church and he walked up to me, his face like thunder, and he shook my hand. He said, Phil, it's a sad day. <laughs> I'm like, well, not for me. <laughs> I understand what you're saying. This is a happy day. So, uh, and, and also, uh, as you can see from this photograph, um, I'm wearing a, a particularly large corsage in my buttonhole. Now, what I, I realized is that I had more hair in those days, but less brains, because I didn't know the difference between a buttonhole and a corsage. And so I, again, arrived at the church early, and I was presented with a box of flowers, you know, some for kind of, you know, the, the, the mother of the bride, and, you know, your grandmother, and your, your you know, all your, your mates, and all that kind of stuff. And so I'm looking in this box, and I, I think, clearly the biggest flower is for me. <laughs> and so I, I nicked my grandmother's corsage and wore it all day at my wedding. And uh, there it is in all its resplendent glory. So um, it's been a good week in our household. And th this morning, I want to talk to you a little bit about having vision in tough seasons. Having vision in tough seasons. Now, I know none of you have ever been through a tough season. So this is for those of you that may go through one one day. You know, the reality is, as a Christian, it's not whether you are at some point going to go through a season of challenge and pressure. It's what are you going to do when you do Jesus said this, he said, in this life, you will have many troubles, which may not have been the most encouraging thing he ever said, but it's true. And in fact, you may well have discovered this, that as a Christian, someone who's signed up to follow Jesus, you may have discovered that sometimes following Jesus actually gets you into trouble. Far from it uh, fireproofing your life, sometimes Jesus deliberately leads you into a furnace in order to reveal something of himself. And as we're looking at vision in these next few weeks, it's so critical that we have vision because vision in a, a rosy season is one thing, but where you really need vision is where everything is going a bit pear-shaped. <laughs> you need to understand where you're heading to, what the trajectory is, what God's doing, where God is in those seasons, because it's that that sustains you and enables you to run a good race. Having vision for the long haul is so critical and it's part of living a victorious Christian life. And at some time, all of us will hit a tough season. I, I remember even in the life of Lauren, my daughter, is a little five-year-old. She was sitting in the back seat of the car. We were driving along. She bit into an apple and suddenly her very first tooth came out. 
It was a traumatic experience. There was lots of blood. There were lots of tears. And in the midst of the tears and the blood, she shouted out. She said, Mommy, Daddy, has anything this terrible ever happened to you? <laughs> I'm like, I'm sorry to break it to you. All of our teeth have fallen out. What? All of your teeth? Yeah, all of them. But they grew back. It's okay. It's going to be all right. At some point, you're going to hit trouble. You're going to hit pressure. You're going to hit challenge in your life. How many of you would say right now you're in a tough season? I'm waving with you. You feel like you're walking through a tough season. You know, there are all sorts of different tough seasons, different reasons for tough seasons, which we'll go into a little bit later on. But I would say for, for us, this last uh, just a little under three years, I would say it's probably been the toughest season of our life as a family. And it all kicked off just under three years ago. Uh, I walked back in the, the house on a Tuesday morning. I'd just been walking the dog and praying. It's our kind of usual kind of routine. Carol's in the front room kind of finishing off praying. And I came in the door. And almost literally as I came in the door, she received a phone call from her brother. And uh, he, he said to her, he said, is Phil with you? And she said, yeah, he is. He's just walked in the door. And then he told her that her father died that morning. Suddenly, very, very tragically, on the roads in Sussex. And uh, it was, uh, you know those moments where you just, everything's it's almost slow motion. And you can just remember it with crystal clarity because you feel like your world is imploding. And it was, it was one of those moments. I remember she just screamed, dropped the phone, and I picked it up and found out the details. And for us, really, that started a, a tough season because... Those of you that have ever walked through not just grief but also trauma will know that trauma does strange things up here and strange things in here. The, the human makeup is not designed to react to trauma well initially. So we have all these defense mechanisms. We have all these deeper layers of pain that suddenly come out in seasons of trauma. And certainly for us, I would say that has been the case. This last two and a half years has been navigating fears that we didn't know were there, pains, mysteries, unresolved things, disappointments, working it through with others, praying it through with others, walking it through, trying to discover, God, what are you doing in this tough season? And all of us walk through those kind of seasons at one stage or another. And sometimes what happens, you may have discovered this as well, is that when you walk through tough seasons, it's like you're a magnet for other tough things to happen. Tough things never seem to happen in ones. They always happen in a bunch. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> and uh, you know, even just this last several weeks for us, just strange kind of things. Now, I know far worse things happen to people, but just kind of strange, unrelenting things that are just tiring. You know, so our first holiday this summer, Carol kicked a stone in the sea and broke her toe. We then come home and she gets uh, an eye infection and damages our eyesight permanently in one of our eyes. And then on our last holiday, within five minutes of arriving in Mallorca, she falls down the stairs and breaks her, her bone in her left arm. And we spend a lot of, the, hospi a lot of the, the holiday in hospital. And you just, sometimes you walk through those seasons and you think, enough already. <laughs> what is going on, Lord? What are you doing in this season? What is, what is going on? How can I have vision in this season that keeps me running for the long haul? And as I was praying a number of months ago, I was like, Jesus, how long is this season going to last? And crystal clear, like a bell, he said, it's going to last three years. But this is not just about you, it's about the nation. 
And so my first question was, is that three more years or three years in total? <laughs> I was like, like, how are we doing on that stopwatch? <laughs> how long have I got left? And uh, he said, for you, it's three years total, but for the nation, it's just beginning. Now, how many of you understand that what happens in your life is not always just about you? There is something deeper that God is planting in you in seasons of pressure that actually is also for other people when you come out the other side of your pressure circumstances. That's why Paul, when he writes in 2 Corinthians 1, he says, listen, when we were in the province of Asia, we suffered pressure far beyond our ability to endure. In fact, we felt the sentence of death in our hearts. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And then he says this, we comfort others with the comfort that we ourselves have received. In other words, there is always something when you walk through suffering, holding on to God, he places something in your life for you, but also for other people. Because he wants you to be a living message, not just a carrier of information. (laughs) See, turning up to someone with a nice clear doctrine statement probably won't do much for them. But he has given you as a living letter to say, this is who God has been for me, even in the toughest of times. So I want to suggest to you, if you are walking through a pressured season right now, God is doing something in you, but it's also a bigger picture. Because I really believe that the greatest days of the church are yet to come in this nation. And in a context of global uncertainty with things like Brexit and nuclear weapons suddenly being on the news reports and ISIS and uncertainty about economies and world leaders, I tell you what, the greatest days of the church are yet to come. And if you're walking through pressure right now, he's putting something in you for the nation, not just for yourself. And so I want to look at a moment in Jesus' life where he walked through a wilderness moment, a tough pressured season and in your Bibles you can find that in Luke chapter 4. If you haven't got a Bible the words will come up on the screen behind me and uh, we'll read together Luke 4 and verse 1. It says this, Jesus full of the Holy Spirit left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days And at the end of them, he was very hungry. I added the very because I'm feeling for him. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me. Note, it's been given to him, not by God, but by man. And I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil again led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. 
And when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. But Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. All right, here's the first lesson from this story and it's this. Just because something is difficult doesn't mean that God has left you. (laughs) Just because something's difficult doesn't mean that God has left you. And in the context of this story Everything has been going very, very well for Jesus. Jesus is approximately 30 years old when we hit this story. He has grown up in the kind of backwater town of Nazareth. And he begins to emerge into his public ministry at the age of 30. And he has just been baptized by his cousin John in the River Jordan. And whole towns and villages in in Israel are emptying to go and hear John the Baptist. And they witness the baptism of Jesus. And at Jesus' baptism, he has this incredible encounter with God where the heavens open and he hears a voice from heaven saying, You are my beloved son. And with you, I am well pleased. I mean, it's just a beautiful moment in the life of Jesus. And Luke 4 verse 1 is immediately after that has just happened. And this is what we read. The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems like a slightly strange next move from God. What are we going to do? Jesus has just been baptized. He's just received the affirmation of the Father. Right, I'm going to lead him into the wilderness. Do you know, there are many, many reasons why we go through wilderness seasons. Sometimes it's the enemy. Sometimes it's our own stupidity. Sometimes it's just a mystery, but sometimes it is a divine conspiracy. Sometimes God himself leads us into desert places to do something in us and through us. You might say, well, how do I know what the cause of my particular tough season is? Well, you've got to ask the Holy Spirit. You can't turn to the rule book. You've got to work it out with God and say, God, what is happening in this season? What is it that you're doing? Are you involved? Is this the enemy? Is this your work, Father? What are you doing? You work it out in relationship to him. But for Jesus, God was just as with him in the wilderness as he was in the baptism tank. (laughs) You notice that. It's the Holy Spirit that led Jesus into the wilderness, not the devil. (laughs) God was just as with Jesus in both scenarios. And sometimes it's on the canvas of adversity that God demonstrates his best artistry. He brings forth incredible beauty from tough situations. He takes the fragments of our lives and turns them into something glorious. And sometimes, not in every case, but sometimes God himself will lead you into a difficult place so that you can transform it by his grace and by his power. And that is what's happening here in the life of Jesus. What I'm saying is sometimes before rebuking the enemy, we need to actually talk to the Father and say, God, what are you doing? What are you doing in my life right now? What is it that you're wanting to place in me in this tough season? How are you trying to get my attention? Because I tell you, God loves to bring forth victory from things that apparently seem like defeats. And the cross is the ultimate demonstration of this truth. 
Do you know the first place you should go when you're walking through a tough season is the cross of Jesus Christ. Because the cross reminds you that God brings forth victory from something that seemed like a defeat. The cross is the ultimate demonstration of that. Many of you will remember that in the gospel accounts, Jesus, as he is about to breathe his last breath, he makes this cry, and it's a quote from the Old Testament, and he says out loud, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Anyone remember that? You've read that in the gospel accounts. And many over the years have really misunderstood what was happening in that moment and have said, oh, that was a, that was a sign that God had abandoned Jesus, that he'd left Jesus. That's actually not what is going on in that moment. What was happening in that moment is that Jesus was quoting the first line from Psalm 22, which for the Jewish readers of the Torah and the Old Testament was one of their favorite messianic psalms. In other words, a psalm that spoke about one day God rescuing mankind by sending a savior from heaven. And they would read it. It was like the, 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 one of the best known songs in popular culture of their day. I mean, if I was to, for example, sing the line, Hello. Like, you might immediately think of Adele, okay, because she has a song with the first line, hello. I'm not going to sing the rest of the song. And what's happening here is that Jesus is quoting the first line of a song. (laughs) And when you did that in Jewish culture, it meant that you were meant to think about the rest of the song. What's the rest of the song about? So here's how that song goes, Psalm 22. Here are the first couple of verses which certainly sound like a wilderness cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. That's the beginning of Psalm 22. But as Jesus on the cross cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All Jewish hearers would have thought about the rest of Psalm 22. And here is how the end of Psalm 22 finishes. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship, and all who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. He has done it. Because what Jesus understood as he was dying in agony on a cross, in ultimate suffering, in the ultimate wilderness, he understood as he quoted Psalm 22, I am coming out on the other side because I know the end of the story and it's right here in Psalm 22. Future generations are going to be told about me. I am the one who's done it. Dominion belongs to the Lord. The nations belong to him. And he understood three days time, I tell you what, I am busting out of that grave. Because my father told me that I would. Death cannot hold me. It has no dominion on me. It has nothing on me. I know the end of the story. And I'm suffering now. But my father is bringing forth fruit. He's bringing forth victory out of what seemed like the greatest defeat. And that's why when you're walking through a tough season, you sing and you boast and you make much of the cross of Jesus Christ. Because it's the ultimate demonstration of what God does in the wilderness. 
he uses the fragments of our lives, the things that we cannot make sense of, the, the suffering, the hurts, the pain. God can win with all of that stuff. Romans 8.28, God works all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Just because it's difficult doesn't mean that God has left you. I read a quote this week by John Ortberg, which said this, that oftentimes before people become Christians, their greatest objection to the Christian faith is the presence of suffering in the world. And yet very often, once people are Christians, they understand that the cause of greatest growth in their life is walking through suffering. Because they discover a God who's with us in the midst of the darkness. See, following Christ is not a fireproof guarantee that you won't ever walk through troubles. Far from it. But I tell you, you've signed up to the one who's gone to the cross and gone through the other side and has promised to take you with him. And that's the gospel. That's the vision we have in tough seasons. Secondly, what we learn from this passage is that actually there are no victories without battles. We love a great victory, don't we? Do you know what? You cannot have a victory unless you fight a war. You, you can't. You, you can't bring forth the spoils of war until you've actually walked through something. I think someone put it this way, that you don't ever have a testimony unless you've had a test. You don't have a message unless you've walked through some mess. That's the way it works. You have no VE day unless you have D-Day. Unless you land on the beaches of Normandy and try and take a beachhead, you have no victory in Europe in World War II. At some point, victory means risking something, putting your neck on the line, saying, I'm going to sacrifice something because there is no advance without sacrifice. And sometimes God will deliberately place you in a battle so that you can bring forth victory. <laughs> Now, I know that there are all sorts of crummy, evil things that happen in our lives that God has nothing to do with whatsoever. He is not the author of suffering. Suffering does not flow from the nature of God because that's not who he is. All sorts of crummy things happen that he has nothing to do with. But sometimes, as in this story, God will deliberately lead you into a battle. It's not the enemy, it's not your stupidity, it's not a mystery, it's God. I love this little insight in Psalm 78, which speaks about the men of Ephraim in Israel, and it says this, it says, The men of Ephraim, though armed with bows, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant and refused to live by his law. They forgot what God had done, the wonders he had shown them. And this is a picture of these men who were armed with the right equipment to win a victory, but they turned back in the day of battle. In other words, they had everything they needed to bring forth the great victory, but they missed their greatest moment. They turned back in fear. You need to understand, if God has led you into a wilderness season, he has already equipped you to win a battle. That's exactly what happens here for Jesus. What's happened literally two verses before this wilderness encounter? You are my son, whom I love, and with you I'm well pleased. That's what's just happened before the wilderness. 
Jesus had this incredible revelation of how much his daddy loves him. I'm his son. I'm his beloved. He's pleased with me. I haven't really done anything yet, but he's just pleased with me anyway. This is the revelation he's just got from God. What happens next? The enemy begins to tempt him. If you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, the enemy begins to hammer down on the very revelation that Jesus has just received. And what is happening here is that Jesus has already been equipped to win. (laughs) He's already been equipped for success. And I want to suggest to you that the very revelation you had about the character of God in the last season is exactly what you need to win in your current season. So I want you just for a moment to think, what did God tell me about himself in the last season? What did he tell me about myself in the last season? What was it that he said to me? What was it that he showed me? I tell you, it is that very thing that God has put in your life as a weapon to bring forth victory. That's what you fight with. Remember, a number of years ago, God began to speak to me about the fact that I had an approval idol in my life. And I realized that there were other people and things that I needed to say yes to before I said yes to God. I was looking for man's approval before God's approval, and God graciously showed me that one day. And it was one of those, Lord, show me any offensive way in me. And he was like, all right then. And he did. And he showed me something. But he also said, do you know what, Phil? I am your sufficiency. Your approval comes from me. You are my beloved. I love you just as you are. I was like, God, that is a beautiful revelation. Do you know what happened in the next year? I was more disapproved of by people than ever before at any point in my life up to that point. What was going on? I had already been equipped to win. (laughs) God had already set me up for success because he'd already told me what I needed to know. Ah, it doesn't matter that you disapprove of me. My father approves of me. That's how it works. Very often, too, what happens is that the enemy will go after and attack the weapons in your life that actually God has designed for the enemy's destruction. In other words, your destiny often is in the place of your greatest weakness and attack, your Achilles heel, the place you think, gosh, that is such a weak area of my life right now. That is likely to be exactly the area where you're going to bring forth a great victory. Because that's the way God does it. He takes the things that the enemy attacks and uses them and turns them on their head. Uh, even this week, we had this just bizarre experience. I can laugh about it now, but we, uh, we felt God speak to us about giving some money away. And so we got some cash out of the bank and got a card and kind of wrote it. And we're just excited because how many of you know one of the weapons God's given you is generosity? Because generosity releases hope, it releases encouragement, it releases faith, it releases a sense of family. It's like a weapon in your hands. Okay, It's one of the things in your toolkit, generosity. And so we're, like, we're really excited about this. We're going to give this money away. It's going to release something of God's heart. And um, <clears throat> it was just sitting there for a couple of days. And then two days later, we lock ourselves out of our house. <laughs> and there is no window open. There's no door open. And in the end, we have to call the locksmith. And the total bill comes to almost exactly the amount of cash that we got out of the bank two days before. And it's still sitting there. In fact, I have to go and get that cash to pay the guy. So I give him the cash that we got to give somebody else. So then, of course, the next day, we've got a decision. Do we give less money 
Do we give the same money? Do we not give at all? Well, no, no. The enemy's going after a weapon that's designed for his own destruction. Let's just give anyway. <laughs> Let's give anyway. That's how it works. God sometimes deliberately leads you into a battle to bring a victory. Next thing that we see in this story is this, is that the wilderness season is sometimes not actually about revealing your weak areas. It's about revealing your strength. You know the phrase, adversity introduces a man to himself. Do you know that saying? About three of you. Okay. Let me tell you about a saying. Adversity introduces a man to himself, which simply means this. You discover who you really are when the times get tough. You discover what's in you. When pressure is put on you, you suddenly find leaking out of you what is in the core of you. And, and sometimes it doesn't look very good. In my life, it's often looked a bit ugly. I, I've realized maybe I don't trust Jesus as much as I thought I did. Maybe I don't believe he's going to provide as much as I thought I did. And sometimes pressure can reveal weaknesses. But let me tell you, the opposite is also true. Sometimes God leads you into the wilderness to reveal the strength that you carry, but you don't really realize you have. And that's exactly what's happening here in the wilderness season for Jesus. Suddenly, the enemy starts to apply the thumbscrews. And what happens in Jesus' life, he's like, no, no, no. It is written. Man does not live by bread alone. And boom, boom, boom. Again and again and again. Jesus is suddenly revealed in his glory and his authority. It's something that never would have happened if he had not gone through the wilderness. And resistance creates muscle. Now, I'm told by my uh, bodybuilding friends that this is how pumping iron works. Okay? You, that you pump iron and the resistance in your muscle fibers breaks down fibers and then they grow back stronger. That's how pumping iron works. Uh, I remember coming back from New Zealand once and one of the guys on my team, we'd had a 12-hour leg and we just arrived in Singapore and, you know, we're kind of jet-lagged and kind of just half alive and, uh, you know, I'm just kind of sitting down, kind of trying to compose myself and think godly thoughts. And, and my friend, Johnny Penman, is in the gym lifting weights. I mean, I kid you not. I mean, he's there, he's like pumping iron and doing the leg presses and all that kind of stuff. And he understands this, that you grow muscle through resistance. That's how it works. Pressure creates growth. And if you want a resistance-free life... You will not grow as an individual. You will not grow. Because you will never have to depend on God for anything. <laughs> but I tell you, resistance brings forth strength from our lives. Because we realize we need Him. So what happens when you trust God in pressure, it creates spiritual muscle on the inside. Spiritual capital. This is what James 1 verse 2 says. Consider, I mean, this is just amazing. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Can I hear an amen? <laughs> Consider it pure, not just joy, pure joy. <laughs> you know that joy is different than happiness? <laughs> joy is rooted in an eternal reality, not your circumstance. Paul's saying, consider it pure joy 
when you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith is producing perseverance. It's bringing forth strength. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. (laughs) How do you get to the place where you can say, I am lacking nothing? Persevere through storms. Persevere through the trial. Don't let go of God when the going gets tough. I tell you, the key when you're walking through the, the storm and the desert and the wilderness is to say, God, I am not letting go of you because I know this season is not actually about weakness. It's about bringing forth strength. There is an upgrade on the other side of this wilderness and the enemy better flip and watch out when I emerge from it because I tell you, I'm taking some ground. There is an upgrade coming. Perseverance is going to finish its work in me so I become mature, not lacking anything. God sometimes will lead you into wilderness to get you stronger, to build muscle. You're coming out with an upgrade. <laughs> you know, I remember teaching my kids to ride a bike. And you just, you know, when you're a dad teaching your kids to ride a bike, you just feel like the biggest meanie in the whole world. Because, you know, you're sticking them on that little bike and they keep falling off and, you know, cutting their knees and, you know, grazing their hands. Like, Daddy, can I stop? I want to go in the house now. No, keep going, keep going. You're going to get it in a minute. But it hurts. I know it hurts, but you're going to be able to ride a bike at the end. It's going to be amazing. Oh, okay. Get back on the bike, wheel on the bike. And eventually they get it. And suddenly you've promoted strength in their life that was not there before. But you've had to walk through the process to get there. You cannot circumnavigate pain or pressure if you want to grow. You've got to go through the gray's knee. You've got to persevere because there's an upgrade. God draws boundaries sometimes on our life not to punish us but to promote us. That's why Jesus said, listen, my father is like a gardener. You're like the vine. And he comes to really fruitful branches or fruitful people and he trims them back so that you can be even more fruitful. You know, I had this, we had this kind of hedge at the end of our garden, and I literally, I, I thought I'd killed it like this, this kind of summer. I literally hacked it right back, cut all the greenery off. It was, like, it was like a stump in the ground. I kid you not, six weeks later, that thing is huge. I, mean, I, don't know where, I didn't know so much life could exist in such a thing. But here's the thing. Jesus prunes fruitful people. Hebrews 12 says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but produces a harvest of righteousness for those who are trained by it. (laughs) God is committed to bringing forth strength. And then very quickly, number four, you are not the temptations you resist, but the virtues that you embrace. Jesus in this moment is tempted three times with very specific temptations. And each time he resists by quoting the word of God back to the enemy. Elsewhere, we know this in Hebrews 4, it says, Jesus is a high priest who's able to sympathize with our weakness because he has been tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin. What does that tell you? Well, one very important thing, temptation is not sin. You are not displeasing God when you feel tempted. Jesus was in the wilderness and he was tempted, but chose to say yes to the Father. 
And so often in wilderness seasons, you will get tempted by the enemy. You'll get tempted to all manner of things. Self-pity, greed, selfishness, lust, whatever. You fill in the blanks. The enemy will come and he'll tempt you about your identity. They say, ah, you see, you're just, you're tempted because that's who you really are. But Jesus understood his identity. It was not about the temptations he resisted, but the virtues he embraced. So important that we remember that. And then lastly, God only gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. And often what I've discovered in my own life is that when you're walking through a trial, it creates a humble dependence that you just didn't have before. And you know, pride really is it's the opposite of humility. And pride is the is the mindset of I can come up with all my own answers, solutions, and resources to all my, the problems in my life. I don't need God or anyone else. I am self-sufficient. I'm a standalone. Really, that's what pride is. And Scripture says this, that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And sometimes what God does in wilderness seasons is he's creating an opportunity for us to be humble so that he can pour out grace. Because that's what the Father loves to do. He loves to pour out grace. But he cannot do it unless there is humility present. Humble dependence draws on grace. And I think that's perhaps why in the history of the church, the places around the world where God has often been most at work have been the places of greatest persecution and greatest suffering. So the greatest revivals in the world right now are in the countries that none of you would want to move to because there is such suffering for the gospel. And the reason that the church thrives in such situations is because of humble dependence on a God of grace. Sometimes we are so self-reliant in the West that God cannot pour out the grace that we really need. I remember reading a book by Brother Yun, who was a Chinese pastor, and he'd been in prison for many years, and he'd had to lean on the dependence of God in prison. And he'd seen incredible miracles pouring out of that place. And yet his experience was when he visited the West, he said, I actually believe the West is really the persecuted church because you have everything you need and seemingly no need for God. And when I read that, I thought, Father, forgive me. Make me a dependent man. Do you know, God is achieving so many things in suffering and trial. And the end of this story is this. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. The power of the Spirit. Some transaction happened in the 40 days of the wilderness that meant Jesus emerged mightier than ever before. And that's what God is achieving when we trust him in trials. Let's stand together, shall we?